that was the thesis for this is like nobody can provide or copyright your story it's like the dr seuss quote of there's so many other people out there but there's only one of you that's right how did you get into mountain biking uh mountain biking uh you know i've always liked to bike since i was a little kid i was always on my bike if i had free time i was on my bike and I got so much into bikes that, you know, you get your crappy bike from your parents and it's, you know, an okay bike. Right. But I wanted a GT performer. And, you know, that's like, you know, this is back in the 80s, right? So <laughs> BMX, skating, the all was coming really big. Right. So my parents are like, well, if you want it, you got to earn the money. So I actually hustled and I was a paper boy. Um, I cut people's grass. I babysat. And I saved up all my money, and this is dating me, but I actually ordered my own bike when I was 12. Wow. Um, and I ordered it from a magazine, and there was a thing back in the day called COD, cash on delivery. So the UPS person would come, and they'd drop off your package, but you had to pay them cash or a check. Well, it's like pizza. Yeah, but it, it was crazy, though. So this UPS truck comes up, and my parents never ordered anything, so it was kind of strange. And I remember UPS, and I still have affinity to that brand to this day because they delivered like my pride and joy, which was Transformer GT. Yes, it was Pro Performer, actually. Uh, Yeah, it actually wasn't the Pro, it was just the Performer. (laughs) But still, it was like a $250 bike back in the 80s. So by today's standards, I mean, that's like over $1,000. And there's this 12 year old kid, and the UPS driver gets out and said, Hey, is your parents here? And I'm like, what do you know? Uh, is this the bike? And he's like, oh, yeah. And he just couldn't believe that it was this kid that ordered this bike by himself. Wow. And I just handed over the cash, and he handed me this big box. Um, and I put together my my dream bike and uh, had it for a long time. It was awesome. And since then, you've been into mountain biking. Yeah, so sorry. That's a little bit long-winded. But it all started with this passion for bikes. I always liked bikes. And I think it's always, uh, you know, help, you know, the freedom um, and the adventure of where you can go on your bike. You can go wherever you want. And um, I used to take that thing single speed all the way to the next town that was like 10 miles away and, you know, drive on like pretty major roads. So when I think about that sense of adrenaline and adventure as cars are whizzing by, very not safe, no helmets back then. I wear a helmet now. But then, yeah, even as I got older, then you graduate to the mountain bike, and then the adventure just got even richer, um, being outdoors and being at these trails. And in Kansas, I mean, anywhere, really, there's amazing trail systems. You just have to look for them. And there's some great mountain biking in Kansas. Around here? Yeah, I go at least once a week. I mean, unless it's under 30 degrees, and then I can stay home. I remember whenever the first time I saw you leaving the house with the mountain bike on the back, and you're like, yeah, I'm going out on mountain biking. And I was like, wow. And I thought it was so cool because you have like the office life, but then you get out of the office life and then it's adrenaline, daring, going down the big steep slope with all of the rocks and mountain biking. And it seems like a good way to get that adrenaline fix, that wild at heart, like freedom. Oh yeah. Well, it's a good workout too. Now it's ironic that I work for a risk mitigation health insurance company, but other than that, yeah. you know, it's, I remember, um, you know, telling my boss that I was on this mountain bike adventure. He's like, just be careful. We need you here. So I have wiped out a few times pretty bad. Um, really? yeah, the last one, uh, I went over my handlebars. It was in my toe clips. So I, I, the bike stood with me. So I literally flew over and the bike was attached to my feet and it didn't oh, unclip. Yeah, right. And I landed on my head and I and I could hear the 
my neck crack three times, like click, click, click. I'm like, oh, that's not good. Like and a seatbelt. Yeah, and there was like mud in my helmet. So, um, but you know, you get up and you keep going. And um, I don't know, the metaphor there is you're going to wipe out, you know, if you want to have the good experience, you also have to plan that there's going to be some bad stuff in there. You just got to be careful and, you know, be, yeah. be, be safe, but also have fun. Yeah. With the wipeout, had you not been wearing a helmet, that could have been bad, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I always wear a helmet. Um, I learned that the hard way when I um, went to the Mrs. T's triathlon in Chicago. I trained all summer, and I lived downtown Chicago for the triathlon. And I biked, and I lifted weights, and I swam, and I was so ready to go. But I showed up race day, and I didn't have a helmet. Oh, wow. And they're like, you can't race. So I went to um, the bike shops that were there that, you know, they do like little pop-up things. And I'm like, hey, I need a helmet, man. I don't have a helmet. They're like, well, it's race day, man, 250 bucks. I'm like, oh, what? Come on, man. And, and this was like 20 years ago. So, I mean, by today's standards, that's egregious. So I learned a few valuable lessons there that there are some terrible people out there that are capitalistic monsters and... um also to be prepared and just think things through. So I didn't do the triathlon. Um, maybe someday. I don't know. I don't think I could do it. The swimming was really hard. I probably would have failed anyway. Yeah, swimming's the hardest part in my opinion. What's the function of toe clips? Why do they have toe clips on bikes? So it gives you um, a lot of uh, biking is pushing down, and, okay. but there's also a pull-up factor. So when you're on toe clips, it just optimizes. It helps the pull-up. It helps the pull-up. So um it really gets a better workout, better for your legs. And it also okay. is, you can get faster. You can um, um, accelerate faster as well. Your feet don't slip off. So it's when they work, it's awesome. Right. But when you wipe out it. <laughs> then it, you're stuck like a snowboard. Well, not necessarily. They're supposed to unclip. But okay. sometimes you stay clipped in. But um, this particular time, uh, I stay clipped in. Yeah. So growing up, I had an older brother and he was a skateboarder. Okay. And I always wanted to do what my older brother did in skateboard. And he got really good and he had the YouTube videos up and they travel around and go to different skate parks. Oh, nice. But I could, I figured out how to do an ollie. So I get the board in the air. And then I was working on a kickflip and I could do it whenever I was in the grass and I wasn't moving. Yeah. But as soon as I got on like concrete and I started doing it, I wiped out, not like a bad wipeout, but I ended up BMXing. That's what I got into. Okay. how am I going to BMX? And I never got into mountain biking, but I did wipe out in BMX a few times and it wasn't fun. So did you wear a helmet? I did wear a helmet. Good for you. Yeah. But like my wife, this podcast is brought by you by the future of helmet wearers. <laughs> yeah. Like I didn't have toe clips. And one of the big issues with BMX is that you'll land hard and then the pedals will go and they'll whack your shins. Yes. Yeah. And so whenever you talk about toe clips, I'm like, yeah, that would have been nice um, to have toe clips. And then whenever you're going downhill, you can only move as fast as you can push the pedals down. Yes. Right. But and then toe clips will help you uh, move quicker, like yeah. you said. Yeah. I don't want to get into scars, but I, I literally have a, a scar that looks like a bear carved a chunk out of my uh, the back of my calf from... My BMX pedal, metal pedal. I still have it to this day. Yeah. Toe clips. How many siblings did you have? Uh, Three siblings. Three siblings. Are you the baby or the oldest? Uh, I was the second in line. My sister Amy was first, then myself, my brother Kevin, and then my sister Mary. Okay, so you're the oldest boy. The oldest boy, yeah. Nice. Did that come with uh, pressure to be Uh, a leader? 
I don't, I don't think so. I mean, my parents had so many kids that, I mean, four is a lot and we lived in a pretty small house. So it was, uh, we were on top of each other. So it was just kind of figuring it out. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that, that we're just, you know, we're about two years apart, each one of us. So I think we're all kind of, um, I think we're all leaders. My sister, Amy, my brother, Kevin, my sister, Mary, they're all very strong, uh, confident leaders nice. in their respective careers strong-willed oh yeah and then where was that where'd you grow up at i grew up in chicagoland northwest suburbs uh, okay. up in McHenry county it was probably about 25 miles i would say from the wisconsin border so we we're kind of out there so i say chicagoland and people are like oh you're from the city but really i was you know yeah. way out in like the rural part um about thirteen thousand people in the town Cary, illinois wow so, so Cary, Illinois, yeah. and then was it kind of like in the cards with your family to go to college or was that? No, actually, um, it's, it's strange because my sister Amy was actually the first in our family to go to college. Wow. She was the oldest and she went to Western Illinois and I experienced that. I went down there to, you know, unload her stuff in the dorm and I looked around, I'm like, wow, this is really cool. Yeah. So for me, I'm like, well you know, maybe I should do that. I had no plans to do that and actually decided my senior year in high school. Unfortunately, when I decided I, I ranked 132 out of 200 students. I was okay. Bottom, the, 50. Uh, bottom. Yes. <laughs> I was not about 25, I think. And, um, so they wouldn't accept me and to Western Illinois, which is a state school. And I'm like, how is that even possible? Right. But I applied anyway, and they called me, and they had this special program called the Office of Academic Services, um, which is basically, we're going to accept you on conditional probation. So if you get anything less than a B, you're out. Oh, wow. So I got accepted, and I showed up freshman year, and I'm like, I got to make this work, because if I don't get grades... Yeah, this is going to be short lived. Right. So I did what any uh, other creative person would do. I tried to put the odds in my favor, and I selected all the classes <laughs> that I thought I would do awesome at. So I picked art. I picked public speaking. I picked, um, you know, all the things that I I felt pretty confident about. No hard sciences. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> I saved biology and math. Uh, I put that off as long as I could. When you were off probation. But what's funny is that most people actually excel at those things. And it was interesting because I was the only freshman in my public speaking class. They were all seniors. Because they keep putting it off. They keep putting it up because right. everybody is so fearful of, of speaking in public. Even today, I mean, grown adults, this is one of the things people hate to do. Mm -hmm. So I'm there as a freshman. And I didn't realize how strategic it was at the time because not only did I befriend all these seniors and get invited mm -hmm. to all these amazing parties, nice. but I helped them develop their speeches because it just came natural to me. Right. And um, I really got to help people out. And I discovered, hey, I want to do this. I want to do um, you know, public speaking and leadership and developing of others in my career. And that's when I decided to become a communication manager. And that's uh, ironically, four years later, I was teaching that class as a teaching assistant in grad school. Wow. Isn't that cool? That's cool. So you did grad school at Western Illinois? Yeah, I just stayed on. To, yeah, I stayed on. That's, were the professors there speaking in your ear, like getting you to apply to the grad program? Whatever? No, not really. It was kind of a happy accident. Um, I had a girlfriend at the time, and she was a year younger than me. So, um, you know, I just stayed Stuck along because I'm like, oh, you know, might as well go to, apply to grad school. I'm not going to get in. 
Uh, and I did, and and they're like, oh my gosh, we'd love to have you in this program because your story is amazing about how you started in our department as a probably not going to make it freshman, and you wound up teaching the class, you know, four years later, and graduated uh, our master's, you know, program or applied for our master's program. So let's do this. And, yeah, uh, yeah, that's awesome. What, what would have been the alternative? Was your family into a certain trade? Had you not gone? Yeah, to all of my family are in the trade. So, um, which I I love and respect because um, to this day I can still do my own stuff because I learned about you know, woodworking and uh, lawn care and electrician uh, and just, you know, how to run a household, how to, um, you know, how to build a fire. I mean, I I mean, I know that sounds weird, but a lot of people have no exposure to these things, you know? Um, So yeah, I mean, I'm able to do a lot of things myself, which is cool, but I I will say it comes down to time. So now it's, I'm gladly uh, willing to call somebody and say, Hey, can you help me with this? Because I don't want to take apart the toilet uh, and spend half of my Saturday trying to figure out what's going on. The liberal arts, if you study that, it's cool due to the public speaking. And I remember I did exercise science going in and then I talked to an advisor and they're like, hey, you know you could do communication as a major. And I'm like, as a major? Like, Because you have your uh, undergrad in communications, right? Yeah, we both went that route. And I remember just thinking, like when you graduate with a bachelor's degree in communication, it's cool. Like you're a degree holder. You can't fix anything around the house. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of those things. So it's, it's that blend. It's that blend for sure. And, you know, and just because you're good at communications doesn't mean you're good at everything related to communication. So for me, you know, I graduated and I thought I was going to get hired by everybody, but uh, it was hard because people were just like, what is a communication? That's very nonspecific. Yeah. And we already do that. Yeah. Yeah, we're communicating all the time. Yeah, you know, it's like, why do we need to hire someone who has a communication degree? Yeah, so I got into sales um, out of the gate, and uh, I loved it, um, but I was terrible at it. Um, I love the conversations. I love talking to people. I love building the relationships, but I couldn't close a sale to save my life. What were you selling? Uh, I was selling uh, phone lines to old ladies. Nice. Uh, Well, not entirely old ladies, but it makes the story more (laughs) dramatic. But it was pretty much true. I mean, I would cold call these people. And I would try and get them to buy more phone lines, really small businesses, but it was also residential. And, um, and you know, I just had a hard time doing it. I'm like, this person doesn't need another phone line. Like you knew that. <laughs> yeah, I knew that. <laughs> that was my job. <laughs> but I'm like, I can't do this. But uh, anyway, it, it, was, it was a great experience, though. I mean, working on the phones, I mean, I give so much credit to people that um, are customer service reps or phone reps. It was actually very humbling to me. And Interestingly, um, fast forward in my career, I've worked in uh, call centers and uh, customer service, customer experience. That's what I do now. And so much of that starts right when somebody calls in that first voice. So I'm glad I had the experience because I have an appreciation for that skill set. And it's not for everybody. I think it's one of the hardest jobs. Me too. Whenever you get a call from a telemarketer now, do you have an advanced perspective on that? Yeah, I do. I I definitely give them... uh, uh, an opportunity within 30 seconds to, to give the pitch to well to identify their value prop. So one of the, I'll never forget this call. Um, when I called somebody, the person, they told me, they said, you have 15 seconds to tell me what your point is. If you fail, I hang up. And it was like, was this like a hostage situation or something? But it was really powerful. I remember that because I'm like, you're right. So many people say nothing for minutes but if you could get to the point, 
um, that is that is pure gold. Get to the point and do it in a way that makes people want to care. Um, and then I thought, okay, well, asking questions. And you're great at this, Chris. I, I think that's, Colleen and I were just talking about this. She's like, Chris asks the best questions. <laughs> it's like, he, like you, you know, walking the dog and, you mm-hmm. know, like Colleen, you were dog, gone for 30 minutes. Like, yeah, I ran into Chris, <laughs> which yeah. is awesome. There goes that plan, right? No, yeah, like, so good. We got to scratch the plans. The funny thing about doing, like asking the questions and doing the telemarketing is whenever you're on the line and you don't feel it, like you didn't feel this person needs another phone line, it's really hard to make the sale if you don't actually, like if it's not authentic. Yeah, yeah, you know? it is. You, really, I think that's a great segue. You have to believe in what you're doing. And, you know, a lot of the jobs, um, I put my all into them, but I, if, you, if you don't believe it, you're only going to go so successful, it could be so successful, right? And that's probably why I've been in health insurance for the last decade is because I really believe in the industry, um, the problem, um, the, and that's what's exciting to me. I mean, the, here it is a, a product that is the probably the second or third most expensive thing you pay for after uh-huh. you know, your house, your car, and it's something you hope you never have to use. But when you do use it, it has to work really well, and it has to make sure you feel safe, protected, and covered so you can focus on the most important thing, which is your health or that of a loved one. And um, that's a lot to sell yeah. um, and to market and to engage people. And so that challenge um, really inspires me and it still does to this day. Yeah, that's a big challenge. Whenever I first learned about health insurance, it's hard to even, like the word deductible and premium for a long time was like in another world to me. And then someone explained it to me and I was like, oh, okay. And even today, I'm still learning about insurance. It's really hard to understand the insurance policy. How did you educate yourself on insurance whenever you transitioned into that space? Well, it's interesting because when I was looking at the other jobs I've had, I couldn't even tell you what insurance company I had. Right. Um, And and I'm not, um, you know, I'm very similar actually to most people. And if you don't have to use it, you sign up annually with your employer and it's kind of set it and forget it unless something happens. And, you know, not all the time, but usually when you're younger, you don't engage in the health system as much. Um, so you don't have to really experience it. So, you know, how do you educate people? And there's no class in college for mm-hmm. health insurance. There's, they're, they're starting to have classes for financial services, but how to run a household. I mean, right. You know, here, here we are, you know, here I was, you know, with a master's degree and I had no clue about, uh, financial services, uh, health insurance. And there's a reason why I went and had got the pursued those careers because we tend to study things that we don't understand. And when I, went to a tabling effort and got a discover card when I was at Western Illinois university. And I had this really cool experience with this, with this card, not only cause they gave me a free t-shirt, but they gave me this access to these finances to do really creative things. Boom. And I was, I was hooked. Right. I was like, Oh man. Um, but there was part of it. It was like, you know, they're charging me all this interest for that. So I know credit cards have a negative connotation with them as well. But if used the right way, they're incredibly powerful. I mean, I built all of my credit score and enabled me to buy my first condo and use the profits from that to pay for my wedding. And, you know, if you know what you're doing, 
you know, you can use these tools to be really smart with it. Health insurance is the same way. Um, I'm not going to get too nerdy on you, but um, right now I'm doing a health, a high deductible um, health plan with mm-hmm. a health savings account. So last year I was able to sock away 4,000 bucks into this account and it'll grow. And every year I can put more money into it and I'm 47. So in 10 years, you know, I'll probably have 25, 30,000 bucks in there. And that's a big deal. I can use that to pay for anything health related. So a lot of people um, work um, for a long time. And and one of the main reasons is because they can't afford health insurance. Right. Um, So anyway, I think if you can take a step back and think about, okay, health insurance is a financial um, element in your life. And how does it fit in? And how can you manage those costs? But how do you do it in a bigger picture with your other finances? It's, It's all connected. Yeah, the HSA saved our tail. Because oh, yeah? Good. I had one at Cerner, and then whenever I left Cerner, we had an insurance lapse for like 20 okay. days. And I've never broken a bone in my life. And you broke a bone. Then I broke my hand. Oh, my gosh. Two days off insurance. And I it was during basketball. I thought it was a sprain. So I was like, I'm just going to rest. I come home. I'm icing it. 10 days, I go back. And I'm like, all right. I'm going to get back into playing. I didn't want to leave too much. And I throw a ball and my hand is just radiating pain. I'm like, okay, there's something else going on. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to all these places. And I'm like, okay, how much does it cost without insurance? And they give me these different prices. And I finally pick one. Long story short, I had medical expenses. But thankfully, I had that HSA that I'd been contributing to. So we used that and then... I got a nose surgery because I had a deviated septum. Yeah. And then we got to use the HSA. So that's so cool having that HSA and getting that education. You have a grad degree. Do you immediately go from grad school to that sales role for phones? I did. So um, I, I got out of grad school. I was feeling pretty good about myself. I'm like, I have a master's degree. Were you the first in your family to get an advanced degree? Yeah. Yeah, okay. absolutely. And um so yeah, I thought I was I was you know hot shot. Yeah, hot shot, right? <laughs> me too. But nobody wanted to hire me because they're like, okay, um, or or it was a hundred percent commission. I'm like, well, I I didn't feel comfortable at that point, you know, with no experience working on hundred percent commission. But I knew friends that did really well um, uh, and were making a lot of money and launching their careers right out of college doing some of that stuff. So I'm like, well, it seems like sales. I could probably do that. And then I went there and I only lasted about a year. And that's what I really wanted to do was um, advertising. Okay. I really wanted to get into marketing and advertising. I had under undergrad co-degree in marketing. So I knew that I loved to talk about the story, talk about the product. And I knew that that, you know, to assisting sales folks to actually close the deal, that that is where I really excelled in. Even when I was at Ameritech SBC, you know, doing the trainings and pulling together, explaining these products to people, um, helping my coworkers. That was kind of like my niche. So I'm like, I need to do that for a company. So Discover Card, I talked to you about that positive experience I had. And one of my best friends, um, sister worked there and uh, she didn't give me the job, but she definitely put um, my resume on top of the pile and I got called in and, you know, went through a pretty rigorous interview process. I'll never forget the final question. It was from their chief marketing officer, and she asked me one question. And she, she said, no pressure, but the, how you answer this question will determine whether we're going to hire you or not. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> right? And I'll never forget the question. I give her credit to, to this day for it because it was, it was kind of cut into the chase, get to the point. 
And she said, name a brand that's doing it well right now and why, and name a brand that's doing it poorly right now and why. And I was like, and immediately I'm aging myself, but at the time, these were two really big brands. It was Gap and Abercrombie and Finch. And it was right in that controversial time where they were using like younger models uh, mm. in the Abercrombie and Finch. It was more risque. It was very risque, right? And Gap it was rolling out this more kind of family approach and uh, kind of a rebrand and a refresh of their logo and some other things. And I said that at the time, uh, I said, look, Abercrombie's going for the quick sale and the PR value, but it's long-term, probably not advantageous to their brand. It's not sustainable because you can't keep doing that. And it's very polarizing. So you're going to attract uh, some clients, but you know who's buying these products? I mean, who's the parents? T- the parents and are they going to be comfortable that they're going to go into those stores? Or are you going to push them away? And then I said, you know, the gap is, you know, multi-generational. I mean, they're marketing to babies and also to people's parents um, and everything in between. And at the time, and she's just like, that was pretty good. And then she walked out. And then two days later, I got a, a job offer. So, Okay. So you switch over. You're doing marketing for Discover. Yeah. Yeah. Advertising. Strategic Alliances, actually. It was a new group that partnered with these big companies. So we would go out and try to do these like custom promotions. Uh, so think about, think about like shields. We would partner with shields. So we would develop like a, a campaign. If you use your discover card at shields, you would get an extra 10% off. So these kind of strategic alliance to incent people to, to buy more things and to use discover card. Wow. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Got to see a lot in retail. What was your favorite strategic alliance? Uh, well, this is a little, a little off book. No, I actually Shields wasn't one. I just used that because that's more of a modern brand. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, this is back in 99, 2000. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're like, the, the brand was Oldsmobile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's funny. What actually I did work with Oldsmobile, which oh, is ironic. Awesome. They don't even exist anymore. But, um, we, one of the coolest experiences was the hard rock, um, mm. um, we partnered with them and they have an annual rock fest where they have like 20 headline bands and we were the premier sponsor. So I got to manage all that. That's awesome. Uh, which is really cool. So a lot of the bands I grew up with, I got to, did you interact with um, them? Not really. I but mean, you were in the same project, uh, same project behind the scenes, VIP. I felt like Wayne's world, like showing everybody my VIP badge, getting back access to like where all the vans are and stuff. They'd walk by and I didn't really have the courage to get, um, uh, autographs at the time, but I did get a guitar pick from Kurt Hammett, uh, from Metallica. So that was pretty cool. That's legit. Did you see yeah. him? Or yeah. Was it? Yeah. He gave it, he gave me one. So I was like, Oh man, this is so cool. I wanted giving it away, um, to one of my boss's nephews who was a huge Metallica fan. So anyway, it was a cool experience. It taught me a ton about, um, brands and businesses. And I'll never forget one of the bands who will rename nameless. I learned about legal. I learned about brand protection. I learned about compliance all in this. You think that I'm just out there hosting this event and driving around executives and their families to <laughs> yeah, see concerts. Discover guy. Yeah. But I, there was so much more to those events. And someone had the great idea, again, dating myself that people gave out mouse pads a lot nice. back in the day. Yeah. And they decided to give out these, these uh, Oldsmobile mouse pads because they just launched the Alero. I don't know if you remember that car. So anyway, they give out these mouse pads. And 
all of a sudden you have, you know, 50,000 people throwing these mouse pads like Frisbees. <laughs> and it just turned into total chaos. It was a multi-day event, so they didn't do that after day one. But one of the bands, you know, made a joke about the Oldsmobile and said, you know, something, this your father's Oldsmobile, which is their old tagline, and they were just kind of ripping on, you know, how out of touch this particular thing was and as they were trying to like refresh their brand and that they were they were not asked to come back and finish the show and uh, yeah it was kind of a big deal yeah for going to a live band member ragging on one of the sponsors it's like (laughs) come on guys could you imagine their agent in the back room (laughs) it's like you know it's like all right guys don't say anything bad about the brands out there all right i don't know why the guy sounds like he's like no, they typically are, though. <laughs> yes, it's like a city guy. <laughs> they typically are. Yeah. Because the people on the stage are the people with the personality. Yeah, and then absolutely. the agent is the one who's like dampening it to make sure they make the biggest impact they can. But it was interesting, though, because at the time, I mean, that was, it was a good lesson in branding and advertising when you think about marketing and sponsorships and who you align with, with celebrities. And I mean, we've all heard about the horror stories of, we're not going to even get into that, but it's really important. Like who is your spokesperson and everything talks when you think about it. It's not just, you know, your product. It's not just your call center people. It's not your physical location, but who you give to, what you donated, what you invest your time and money in, uh, what companies you invest in, what people you allow as your spokesperson. You know, for years, I got pressure to get a spokesperson at my previous company. Mm-hmm. And they're like, why don't we have a spokesperson like the Maytag man or something? And I'm like, well, look, for what reason? For for what? what is your goal? And I think that that's really important. You have to think about what is your strategic goal and then think about tactics. Don't think about tactics. Tactics don't drive strategy. Strategy drives tactics. And I will say, though, for a lot of brands, they're using that uh, celebrity endorsement stuff very successfully. So it does get people's attention, but you just got to be really careful. Yeah, like with Discover, Capital Card, or credit cards, I think of Jennifer Garner with Capital One. Yeah. What's in your wallet? Yeah. And seeing those commercials, people be like, oh, I love Jennifer Garner. Oh, I need a credit card. I guess I'll get Capital One. Do you think that's the reason why they pick Jennifer Garner? Yeah, I mean, well, if you think about her brand, um, and I don't know her a ton, but I know her as a really smart, responsible person that is very confident. And when you think about like, hey, that's something I want to be. And you have this person up there that is smart and confident. And you're like, oh, and they use Capital One. So there's that subliminal association stuff. Um, I think they also um, use Samuel Jackson the same way. It's like, okay, here's somebody who is direct and funny and right. somebody that I love. So they use that like, oh, this is has personality too. You know, this is like somebody I can relate to. This is somebody that, um, you know, has been in everything and it's kind of the every, you know, wherever you want to be type of thing to steal off of <laughs> another credit card tagline. But no, but I think how you use celebrities is um, you just got to be careful. You just got to be really, really careful with it because, you know, we're all humans and no one's perfect. And, you know, those associations run deep. But that goes for employees too, you know, where you work, how you work for, who you work for, how you represent them in the community, even when you're not working. I mean, Mm -hmm. all that stuff. Yeah, it makes me wonder 
when you talk about that, how important it is, it makes me wonder the decision-making process of those companies choosing who they're working with. For instance, Sprite working with LeBron James or AT&T working with LeBron James. I wonder how many other names they had on the board. And then they were like, let's go with LeBron. Yeah. Well, LeBron, um, he's pretty special. I mean, what he has done, not only for his teams, but also his community. Not everybody does that. So yeah, he's definitely probably the number one, two, and three on their list. But um, some of these brands have big dollars to throw at these these folks. And you know, part of it is oversaturation too. So when you think about, I won't name names, but you know, I could watch TV today and I could probably see the same celebrity on no less than six commercials within a two hour span. Right. And is that okay? I mean, maybe. But what does that do for those brands? What does that do for that person? I mean, it, it makes me think, now I'm closer to it. I'm a marketer and communicator and brand person. So I think, okay, it's kind of like if you if you don't stand for something, you fall for anything, saying, or if, if you represent stand for every, everything. Yeah, if you, you stand, for, yeah, if you stand for everything, then what, it, it just kind of turns into wallpaper. Where's the uniqueness of it? Right, um, and I think that that's what you got to struggle with, not only as a brand, but also as um, the person, the talent that is in that. Is how do you manage that brand for yourself and your personal brand? When I have the whole thing on personal brand, we could talk about. But you know that was interesting segue to my current job. You know, we saw the same talent showing up in a lot of these commercials regionally, so we're like, well, this is weird. And I'm a big fan of supporting actors and. Um, the Screen Actors Guild and all that other stuff, because I'm an artist and I appreciate that craft. But I was also thinking, what's the authentic part of Kansas? So we literally wrapped a van and put Blue Cross and Blue Shield all over it and hit the road. And we went to all these different locations across Kansas with camera, with you know, um, a crew. And we interviewed people and, you know, said, hey, you know, can we videotape this? Can we take your picture and all this stuff? So our last commercial was a collection of real people, real Kansans, rather than spending the hundreds of thousands of dollars on celebrities and stuff, which probably a place for that. We'd probably get more attention if we did that. But um, we're just trying to be more creative with something we can uniquely own. And what is that unique story? And I'll send you the video. It's you know, you could see like the real parts of Kansas. We call the Kansasy parts of Kansas. That's so awesome. It's not just Kansas City. Um, actually, our service area is everything but Kansas City uh, area. So yeah, to to show you know Garden City and Wichita and uh, Mankato and some of these other towns that you've never heard of, it's pretty cool seeing um, you how you tour. Yeah, it, we went on a tour. Yeah, it was called the Our Home, Our Heart Tour. Oh, that's perfect. And it was to celebrate our 80-year anniversary. And a lot of companies, they give you like a cool plaque or something, and they have this big like birthday cake. And, you know, we thought that that was a little, um, a little tone deaf. It's like nobody really cares that you're 80 years old. What are you going to do for me? And uh, why should I continue to work with you? It was kind of, the, we went into it with like thinking about what's the worst thing someone could say. And and then that's how we came up with the idea. It's like, let's get on the road and actually see our customers and say, thank you for letting us do this for 80 years. You know, the first health insurance company in Kansas, and we want to keep the history. So it was more of a heritage and pride than a history. 
Yeah, that's um, cool. Like it was, we called it the future of better health. Like we want to be here for 80 more years or more. So what can we do differently? And we got some pretty good feedback, like really positive stuff in a weird way. It was like we had a note on our windshield and someone said, I love you. You totally helped my family, which was cool. On the flip side, we've had people that weren't so happy. Uh, but those are few and far between. I mean, you know, when, when I'm at a dinner party or I'm at an event, I always prepare myself for like someone to come up to me and tell me about this terrible experience they had because I do experience stuff for a living. And I usually hear about it through a letter or a voicemail or an email or something. Never face to face, really. Well, I, I prepare for it all the time. But most of the time, it's, it's extremely positive. I mean, people, like I said earlier, we show up when it matters the most in a really big way. So they don't have to worry about financial ruin when something happens. So it's, it's really rewarding um, with that, but we still have a lot of work to do. I mean, this is an industry that is so far behind in so many ways. I mean, the fact that you can order a pizza, Chris, and they know exactly what you ordered last month and, uh, and how much you paid and what you'd like on the side and health insurance companies, Every time you call them, it's like they met them for the first time. I mean, that's that's not right. It's got to change. What's the deal there? Why is that? Why is Domino's, they have greater memory than the health insurance company? Well, I think it's because they've made an investment in um, the customer experience. And I just use them as an example because, I mean, if you think about it, they're an incredibly competitive environment. I mean, pizza is one of the... um, Every year, there's more pizza companies and properties. I, I believe it's one of the top five uh, gro- top grossing food items in the U.S. Wow. You have to fact check me on that. It's no secret it's though. Pizza. There. Everybody loves pizza. Yeah. So, so the stakes are really high and the competition's high. So if you're, if you're Domino's or anybody else, you got to think to yourself, what can I do to, to make that experience a little bit better than everybody else? And, you know, I've got kids. You've met them. And the fact that I can have them order their own food as, you know, teenagers and they can track it and I can see when it's delivered. It's on my device. So my wife and I are out to dinner and the kids are at home and I can kind of see that they're doing this stuff. I mean, so you got to think about the story. Like what, what, what are they providing you that someone else isn't? And, you know, we like to shop local. I mean, we're big fans of supporting local businesses, but when you think about, you know, the Domino story, a lot of those Domino's are personal franchises. So they are local businesses um, and they're using technology to make my life easier. And when it comes down to it, price is definitely the first variable most of us consider, but we all buy based on emotion and what is easiest for us to consume. And they just have an easy process, the pizza tracker. And now they have their pizza insurance. Like if we drop the pizza, yes. then we'll get you another one. And those really unique almost zany marketing campaigns to separate themselves from the hut or Papa John's. Yeah. But that's experience because everybody's had that experience where they get the pizza, they set it down. Their dog, you know, is excited. Sunny, sunny, always sunny jumps up. And next thing you know, the pizza flops over and it's all the cheese is on one side. (laughs) You can't fix that. I mean, you, it just, it's done. It's ruined. Right. Um, it happens. So yeah, it's smart. And you know what? It's thinking about the experience. So what they're doing and what we're doing um, at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Kansas is we're thinking about the journey. So we think about those micro moments. So when somebody, 
each step along the experience. And they did the same thing. They found out, oh, this happens to like 10% of the people and it's a huge pain. What if we could make that we're, they're selling peace of mind is what they're selling. Because I, I would hazard a guess they don't get a whole lot of returns, but they're selling peace of mind. That's my thought as well. With your Discover Strategic Alliance, when do you find yourself transitioning into a leadership role? After Discover, do you transition into a role to where you're managing? No, I, I was actually um, given a leadership role very early in my career, and it was probably too early, uh, frankly. But it was good because I learned the hard way, you know, not to hire people you like. Um, uh, that shouldn't be the first criteria. Of course, you should hire people that you like, but you shouldn't use um, likability is not the same as capability. And I think that those are hard lessons to learn. Every leader has hired wrong in their career. And if, if they say to you that they haven't, then they're probably not being honest with you or themselves. But, you know, people, it's hard to read out of an interview, even working with them for a while. I mean, to get somebody uh, that's really going to develop themselves and your business, you have to have both of those together. And unfortunately, getting that formula right takes a lot of time behind the wheel as a leader to kind of get right. And I'm still working on it and I've been leading people for 20 years. What makes you say you were too early for your leadership position? Well, I didn't have any experience or formal training. So I was just kind of said, hey, you're individually talented, Mike. Good for you. You're rewarded by now leading others. And that's such a mistake so many companies make and, and leaders make. And it really wasn't the company. It was the leader. And I give credit to the leader who gave me the opportunity because they believed in me more than I believed in, in my own capabilities. And they knew that it, it, I needed to get that experience. And I don't know how many of your listeners are going to say that. It's like, I'd love to be a leader, but nobody's going to give me a chance. And if I just had a chance, then I could get to that next level. But nobody will give me a chance, so I'm never going to become a leader. And I'm so frustrated. And um, you, you got to find a leader that's willing to give you a chance. But you also have to be prepared to learn some really tough lessons, um, how to coach somebody, um, how to let somebody go on to something else. Um how to um, meet people as a human being first and know that everybody's going through something. And just because they might not be performing at work, it has nothing to do with you or your willingness to lead them. It's a lot of it is on them. So how do you push some of that power back to them? And I was really naive to say, oh, they came in with a problem. I got to fix it. And it's like, now I've realized that that's not how it is. People got to fix their own problems. You're there to guide them. You're a coach. You're not a authoritarian, go do this. And it takes a long time for people to realize that. And, you know, ironically, I took a lot of leadership classes in grad school, but nothing is a better teacher than, than real experience. And for those that are listening that want to be a leader of others, my advice is to get creative and have people report to you or directly um, look to you for that coaching without formal. So ask for an intern, ask for, to work with a consultant, anybody at any level, even if you're a year into your job, you'd be surprised at how much management needs something done, but doesn't have the capability to just hire a bunch of people. And there are creative ways to not only get more resources, but also give you the experience to lead others. 
emerge into it. Yeah. You mentioned a whole bunch of things there. I know. It's, it's my problem. It's good stuff in there. If you can siphon through, it's kind of like talking to me is kind of like a junk drawer. There's a whole bunch of cool stuff in there, but you got to really dig around to find what you're looking There's for. There's a lot more gold. <laughs> There's a lot more gold than dirt, right? Yeah, that's right. And we're going to sift the gold because you mentioned don't give someone the job based off likability solely, right? Of course, you want people to be likable, sure. But you want to make sure that they have the acumen and they can do the job well. Now, you mentioned it's hard to get to the point, though, to know who's going to do the job well, particularly in an interview. You know, the 30 minutes, the hour, the two hours, that's hard to judge competence or fit or character. So how do you judge who's going to be good for a leader? What's that process like for you? What does that look like to know this person's the person for the job? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, you can fake things pretty well. You can rehearse. You can have a friend or a colleague or a spouse ask you all the tough questions, and you can research it, how other people did it, and you can come in there and you can put on a good show. But the best way to really cut to the chase is to have somebody tell you a story uh, because you can't really make those up. Or if you do, you're going to tell it's inauthentic. And it's kind of like the whole, you can pay somebody for their hands, but also paying them for their mind or, you know, people can do the technical stuff, but you're looking for how people think. And that's been like the guiding principle for me is like, tell me a story, tell me about, and it's not this stereotypical, what's your biggest strength, what's your biggest weakness, because you can fabricate that stuff or you can say the right thing and, oh, really, my, my weakness is my strength. It's like, no, it's not. Come on. Let's, let's talk about, tell me a real story. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? you can't so, do math. Yeah, just tell exactly. Me. Yeah. Yeah. I just, it's just not, um, it's how you talk about it. Right. So it's, and, and I think that was the big learning to me. And, and I didn't unfortunately get that type of, training and coaching and mentorship in my professors until I got to grad school. Um, but really helping me understand how to take some of these principles and how are they going to apply in real life? And I, and I think that that's the biggest thing as a teacher, as a coach is like, how can you make something fun for people? So take a daunting concept and how do you put it into application? And that's how people learn. People learn when they can put something in the application. So much like health insurance. That's what we're trying to tell these stories. So our latest campaign is called Partners for Life. And it is it opens up on a couple sitting on a blue couch, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and all they're doing is telling their love story. That's all they're doing. They're not selling insurance to the camera. To the camera. And they're talking about their partnership. And then as you get further down the website, you can see how does this stuff even work? Um, and oh, by the way, most people have Blue Cross and Blue Shield their whole life, and you can have it when you're 65 years or older because we have all these products. And a lot of people don't know we have these products, so we're part. We can be your part, your health insurance partner for life. But anyway, we've had a lot of success with that. We just launched it, but it's because we everybody's out there with the green screen background with the zero premium stuff. If you've seen one, you've seen them all. So what we try to do is try and be different and, and be more emotive and tell a story. And no accident that the people that were filmed were real people. They weren't actors. And they shared that story and that link with all of their friends. 
And, you know, it's just kind of going on from there. So I've really been more focused on marketing and not selling people stuff, but um, really content, content strategy. So, you know, what I'm selling more is experiences and ideas and feelings than I am actual products. We'll get to the products, but trying to get to that storytelling space is, is my big focus. So when you are thinking about we need a good story, what does this process of generating a good story look like? How do you even start that? What, do you have a template you use or a frame? Well, there's definitely a formula. And if you think about it, um, one of my best friends, uh, Aaron Semmel, he's a producer in Hollywood. And he's talked to me a lot over the years about storytelling and you know the hero and the villain and you know the crescendo and the resolve and there are principles i mean there there's formulas to movie making and i don't say that i follow that verbatim but who you hang out with actually has an impact on how you think about problems and how you think about things and most of my best friends are people that don't work in my industry and that's by design i mean i want different perspectives you don't know how many campaigns that I've pitched to some of my great friends. And they said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Um, don't do that. But they, I've also pitched these other ideas and they said, that's pretty cool. And that's amazing. Actually, it was my friend Aaron that said, get a crew and film that stuff because that is content that will pay dividends for years because you're going to own your content. You're going to be able to reuse that. You're going to be able to be more authentic and you're going to be able to tell a story with it, not just for your 80-year anniversary, but beyond. So actually, he was really one of the inspirations that helped me uh, come up with that idea. And, and shout out to Aaron. Shout out. That's Sam awesome. Home. What makes a good story a good story? I think it has to be inspiring. It has to make someone stop and think. If I can tell a story and someone goes, huh, that's when I know it's successful. And that's pretty simple. That's it. I mean, to me, it's got to move you. It's got to be inspiring in some way. Inspiring in thought, inspiring in action. Make you feel good about yourself. Make you question yourself. Maybe make you think about um, your life and how it applies to you. I mean, we all, we all, it comes back to our own person. And it's not selfish. It's part of the process. It's part of being human is we want to hear these stories because uh, stories teach us more than principles or frameworks. It's the, the stories that um, make it relevant. So you want your story to be thought-provoking? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Everything I do, I, I try and make it kind of align back to my personal and professional mission statement, which is a little cheesy, but um, it's a reminder. And, and my, it, it's very simple. It's, um, you know, six words, make things better, bring the joy. So when I think about that at work, I'm there to make things better. And I'm also there to bring joy. And those sound pretty, pretty intuitive. Like, well, what wouldn't it be if, if you weren't going to make things better? Does anybody out there have a statement that says, make things worse and bring the hate? <laughs> Probably not. But when you have something, I mean, if you go around and ask people like, hey, what are you all about? What do you stand for? What can they tell you? And what I found out is most people have never thought about it. And um, I'm going to send you a link so you can do this. There's actually an online um, 
a little kind of quiz thing that you can take. You put in your strengths, what you're good at, what you love, what inspires you, and it kind of spits out these keywords. That's how I came up with this. It's kind of a cool little thing. Um, did you find that online? I did. I did. And uh, hopefully it still works because I put this guide together like, you know, 15 years ago. But, um, you know, I, I think when I, when I think about your personal brand and your brand uh, blueprint, it starts with your story and that's your past. So the unique things that you've done to become you. Everyone's path is totally different. There's not one that's the same. And if somebody says, oh no, you know, my brother and I grew up in the same house. Well, my brother and I couldn't be more different. Uh, and we had the same ingredients. I mean, literally, I mean, we have the same DNA, right? So, I mean, it's, uh, but his story is amazing and as well, but he has his unique story. And then it's, once you figure out your past, uh, whether it's fantastic, whether it's bad, whether it's filled with trauma, that is who you are right today. And then you have to capture what you are today and how you live your life, what you spend your time doing and why you're doing it and be really honest with yourself. And then, and only then can you think about the future, which is your focus. And I've got a little trick for you to help people think about that too. You said you did that 15 years ago. Yeah. Do yeah. you go back? Or maybe and, 10, maybe 10, 10 or 15, something like that. You're not that old. So yeah. 10 years. Probably. Yeah, probably 10. It was probably, t- it was 10 actually. Cause I was 37, 35, 37. So do you go back and think, is this still me or do I need to adjust this? You know, what's what's cool about it is that it's held up. And I think that that is really cool when you think about brands and the brands that do it right, that spend the time to do the research and what is their true value, they should hold up over time. Now they will adapt to the environment. So how I bring the joy today is probably a little bit different how I brought the joy, you know, 10 years ago, but the core is there because it, it went through the process and it was founded in who I am, that foundation. So it really shouldn't change. And what's interesting, um, if you've done any work with Gallup, you know, they do strength finders and a lot of people do strength finders and they will tell you that your strengths, whether you're 25, 45 or 65, pretty much stay the same. Wow. They'll change a little bit, but not much. And they have a whole category of 34 key strengths. And they'll tell you that those are going to stay the same. That's part of who you are. Who's the Michael Jordan of storytelling, in your opinion? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, I think the Bible is the, the Michael Jordan of storytelling. And I just went way up. I mean, who's going to compete with that answer? But you think about it, that is the best story in the world. Um, when you think about everything that's in there, from faith to love to hate to crime uh, guilt grace redemption um, sacrifice i mean it's every single emotion is in that story and that story um, still to this day um, provides context for everything that we're doing and you know if more people just took a step back and they're like well i can't read the bible it's too long and you don't have to i mean there's a lot of tools make it easier for yourself. I mean, I have a, a daily uh, affirmation. I went to the, the dusty bookshelf down in Lawrence and I found a 1975 book from uh, Billy Graham where he had uh, one paragraph daily devotionals. And every, every day I just pick up the book and I just read this little paragraph and it, it usually cites the, a Bible verse that was the source of his uh, interpretation and um, when I get really into it, and if it hits me the right way, 
I will pick up the Bible and then thumb to the actual passage and read the actual passage. But it's an easier way to approach it. And it only, you know, this only came to me in the last, you know, I would say decade where I've, I've realized that these stories are here. And it's been amazing because, you know, I'm a musician as well. And, you know, I'm reading this passage and all of a sudden it's a song by the birds. Mm. Uh, and I'm like, this is ripped off from the Bible. They made millions of dollars off of this and it was in the Bible. So um, it's just really cool. A great story, a mark of a great story is it's been ripped off a million times. Absolutely. Everybody's copying it, right? And there's something in this story that could apply to anything. And I think that's a really cool part about a lot of faiths in general and like particularly familiar for us is the Bible because people will always pull a verse and be like, hey, this could apply to this situation. You're like, hey, it could, you know? And seeing the applicability and the relevance of the Bible. Billy Graham, like people like that who are great public speakers, who can go around and cast vision, who have that energy and that moxie, we view them as these incredible leaders in history. How much of that do you think is nurture and nature? Yeah, I think some people are just called to it and they've made enormous sacrifices to do that. I think about our previous pastor in Iowa, um, Mike Householder, and he reminded me so much of Billy Graham and just the way he's just so magnetic and how he could tell a story and how he can um, modernize the story. So I'll never forget one of his talks about um, Breaking Bad which, you know, showed a video clip of Breaking Bad it, at church. And, you know, for those of you who watch Breaking Bad, you're like, really? I mean, that's like... That's not the first thing you think of. Yeah, you would never think about that. But the parallels he drew to Breaking Bad to what the story is of sacrifice for your family and, you know, higher order and, and how much there was a lot of religious undertones in there if you look for him. And I think it was just a really interesting uh, talk. So I, I do think it takes a certain type of person but i do feel like that they're called to do that type of work I, yeah. you know and that's amazing and i respect that i mean he went door to door in iowa and introduced himself and now he built this church that is the fastest growing lutheran church in the in north america and um it's packed every sunday i mean everybody wants to watch breaking bad yeah exactly <laughs> but, but but when you can relate somebody again it's another story it's a story telling a story and people are like oh man i didn't look at that it's like a whole nother level and it's you know some people argue that you know you're just trying to entertain people that are more and more distracted and you know what they're not wrong we're we're incredibly distracted i mean we've been sitting here for an hour i mean how many times have you wanted to look at your phone I mean, you're very interesting. Yeah, yeah, actually, I haven't. I haven't wanted to look at my phone. I just looked at the clock. I'm like, wow, we've been talking a while. But no, I think you need to, we're in such a distracted world. Like how many people are going to listen to this, get to this point in this podcast? You know, I mean. You tell me, Mr. Marketing. <laughs> we need high retention, okay? We, we do, we so, do. marketing analytics here. We got like yes. click-through rates. We got conversion, we retention. Yes. yes. And I... One of the questions I want to ask you, and you, but do you think leaders in general, do you think leadership is a trait that everybody's born with and they need to just find how to tap into it? Or do you think there are some people who are just leaders? I think everybody can be a leader. I really do. Um, and, you know, I've learned that the hard way because, you know, I was brought up in a more hierarchical kind of 
structure at corporate um, life. But what I found is that, you know, the best leaders are, you know, all around you. They just, they need to be uh, brought out of their shell. So my previous leaders did that to me. So I had a leader who told me at a very young age, she said, you could be the next CEO. You could be a CEO here or somewhere else. And I was like, what? I, I didn't even think about this. I had never led others. I'm like, how could I be a CEO, let alone, you know, be a leader of others? But, you know, when someone sees that in you and gives you that confidence, then watch out. But I think that my message to everybody else is, you need, if you are a leader, you need to inspire someone else and say, you're a leader, step it up, let's go. And, and if you're not a leader and you aspire to be a leader, you need to find someone that's going to help push you. Whenever she said you could be the next CEO, did that put a lot of wind in your sails? Oh yeah, it was, it was great because, you know, when someone sees more in you than you see in yourself, that's, that's really motivating because you're like, oh, it kind of opens up your eyes to the art of the possible, you know, it, it's like you've heard that if you can dream it, you can do it type thing. But there's a lot of truth in that visualization. You talked about skateboarding and how you could do the ollie on the grass. And the reason why you could do it is because it I was saw my safe. Brother. You saw your brother, but you also, it was safer because mm-hmm. you, you put yourself in an environment that increased your odds of success exponentially because you mitigated your risk of hurting yourself by putting yourself on a softer surface. So you performed better on the grass than you did on the cement. Because as soon as you went on the cement, you internally told yourself, holy crap, if I fall, this is going to hurt. I'll break my neck. <laughs> I'm going to break my neck. So you didn't perform at a high of level because you psyched yourself out. And we all do ollies in the grass well. Um, but it's how do you inspire others to make them feel like they're doing an ollie in the grass when they're on the concrete. That's what I try and do in leadership. Yeah. You are. Do people know what ollies are? <laughs> yeah. We so, tell. That's when you jump your skateboard. Yeah. Your skateboard leaves the ground <laughs> yes. in a controlled manner. <laughs> yes. And you land with it. You're not kicking the skateboard. I was a terrible skater. Yeah. Man, I had all Most people yeah, are. Yeah. We're it's not, tough. Our bipedal nature as humans, a piece of wood with wheels on it is not a natural affinity for. There's few people who are really good at it. I think a lot of people, we really psych ourselves out whenever we think of this idea of being a leader in a large company, all of the decision-making, all of the people that we need to satisfy, the quote quotas we need to meet, like all of this stuff seems so overwhelming. So how do you maintain serenity? Like, How do you keep yourself calm whenever you have a lot of pressure to perform? Well, I think pressure is really good. And I think it's something that people need to lean into, not away from. Uh, I will tell you that the best work I've done is when the stakes were the highest. And um, if you don't have pressure and you don't feel that pit in your stomach before presenting to your board or going out and seeing a customer and, and getting anxious because they may say something that you're not prepared to answer or getting rejected on the phone or whatever, you know, you're not, you're not going to learn and grow unless you go through those things. And um, yeah, I, I think that I just try and tell myself that, you know, growth and comfort cannot coexist. 
So if you want to be comfortable, you can make a great living doing something comfortable. Uh, but if you really want to excel, you're going to have to get uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what I tell myself and others. And it's hard. But the more you do it, the better you get at it. And not only the better you get at it, but your recovery time when you fail miserably shortens significantly. Which is important. It's super important. Getting back up and being resilient in that nature. Yeah. Because so, mountain biking's cool. So just because I fell on my head doesn't mean I'm not going to mountain bike anymore. Yeah, right. Just to be a little bit more careful. Like this one experience doesn't mean that mountain biking sucks. Right. It just means I sucked temporarily. <laughs> yes, I do, I do. <laughs> I know business going down a rocky hill at 20 miles an hour. I mean, it's like, come on. But you do it and sometimes yeah. it works. And yeah. that's the thrilling part about it is like, wow, that just happened. What has been the hardest part about your role? What gives the pressure? Well, the the industry, the product, that's all complex. But the hardest thing that continues to be hard, regardless of this industry or others, is people. You know, as a leader, you try and develop people as much as you can, but sometimes there's nothing you can do to make them better. And that's the hardest part, is when you've given it your all and you just can't evolve somebody where you know that they could be, but they refuse to do it themselves. And that gets really frustrating. I mean, you can't fix everybody is kind of the the thing. That's the toughest part for me because I like, I like a challenge and I like to develop myself and others and to kind of fold the cards and say, Hey, this is not going to work. That's the toughest thing because I hate to quit. How do you know when to let someone go? You know, I, I never let anybody go really. Yeah. I, pretty much just have a conversation with them and say, what do you want to do? And then I just give them the brutal honesty about whether they can achieve that here or not. And that lately, the last five years seems to have worked really well because then it's doing stuff with people, not to people. I think a lot of leaders make the mistake of like, Oh, I had to fire somebody. It's like, well, you should never have to do that. I mean, if you have a good enough relationship with your people, you know, it should be, many conversations over time where you both like literally get to the point where like, let's try something else. And I also think it's like, let them try something else to say, Hey, this isn't working out. We've tried a bunch of stuff. Why don't you do something else? You know, still work for me, still work on the team, go over here and do this. And let's, let's see if that works better for you. And I found that oftentimes it does. People, they get so stuck in their own head and ego about, well, wait a minute. I used to be, you know, a team leader, now a manager, and you're basically going to take me back down to a team leader. It's like, look, I'm not taking you down anywhere. I'm giving you an opportunity to do what you're really good at and that what you actually enjoy. Um, once you can take the title away and once you can take, you know, some of those um, stereotypical pressures of how much you make or where your desk is and some of this other stuff, uh, if you just have real conversations with people, like, like, what do you all have to do? Like, what's going to get you excited to come to work Monday? Like, that's what I care about. Let's start there. Yeah. You know? Right. That's that's the hard part is that's something that I've been struggling with is like, what excites me? And I've been working on this because that excites me. But at the end of the day, you need to do something that excites you. And you also need to pay for your dog's dog food. Yeah, and you got a big dog, man. <laughs> he must go through a lot. He, he goes through a lot of dog food. Yes. So it's like, okay, thinking about, you know, like what excites me? You know, I love talking to people. I love 
creating, being creative, solving problems. And just like graduating with a communication degree, you're like, well, everybody communicates. So what's my niche? And I think my past two jobs have been figuring out what my niche isn't, which is helpful. Yeah, it's very good. Right? Process of elimination. So then from there, it's like, okay, continuing to find that niche. And I know I'm not alone in that. I know there's a lot of people, regardless of age, who they may leave a career and they may be like, I don't know what's next, you know? And that's really hard to navigate all of that. Yeah, it's very difficult. I mean, I will tell you that I really didn't know what I wanted to do probably until about seven or eight years ago. So that's when I finally kind of figured out, I'm like, that's it. Like, this is what I want to do. Was I mean, it a moment or? I think it was a moment. I think it was. Um, and what's crazy is I was, I was doing it as part of my job all along. And it was the the stuff that made me the most exciting, the you know customer experience and branding and marketing and storytelling. That was the stuff that I always enjoyed. I always did that stuff first. Yeah, and I put all like the budget reforecasting to like the end of the week because I'm like I got to get that done, but I I'm gonna do that later. You had to force yourself to do. Yeah, that I had stuff. to force myself to do it. But what are the things that just kind of come to you? And it's the thing is that we just overcomplicate things for ourselves. It's just I tell people just take out a piece of paper. Yes, a piece of paper. Don't use your phone because there's something about writing something down and taking the time to visualize it, see it, and then physically write it down. There's a psychological commitment that happens. And what are they writing down? They're writing down, what do you love doing? Just like take out a piece of paper, like what brings you joy? Let's just, just write that down. Just free conscious, no editing. Don't cross it out. Don't say that's stupid. Just write it down. And then you have to write down the thing. Well, what are you good at? So like guitar, I love playing guitar. I'm not really great at it. So that means it's a hobby. I'm not going to make money doing it. It can't be my job. Now, I don't want to discourage people that suck at guitar um, from pursuing a, a, a career as a singer or a guitar you know, singer or songwriter. But you have to really think about, you know, are you going to be committed to become a better guitarist? Are you going to put in the time? Are you going to get lessons? Are you going to not make money? Are you going to look for other, are you going to take other jobs you hate to finance your advanced learning and schooling and all these other things with guitar? And if you're not willing to make the commitment, then it's a hobby and just put it in the hobby place. You can do it all the time. It's just not going to make you money. So there are ways to compartmentalize some of this stuff but you'll find pretty quickly that there's a lot of stuff you're really good at that you can make a lot of money at. And I think you're actually onto something because I think this podcast stuff is great. I think you're great at it. Well, I think if I get a good guest like you, then I won't have to work very hard. There you go. There you <laughs> Just go. Sit back. No, it's, it's hard because I think I have a little pressure on myself. And I say I, but I imagine other people identify this as well. I got the grad degree and I got the cool job and then I leave the cool job and I'm like, man, I don't know what I'm doing now. And I know we have the societal pressure of like, oh, keep moving up. And like you said, once you get beyond the title, once you get beyond where my office is going to be, then that's where you can get to like job satisfaction. And I think that's a pretty hard transition, but it's an essential transition, right? Like we have to get to that place to where that's not the most important thing. Yeah, I mean, we put so much pressure on ourselves for our job. It's our identity. And, you know, I was just at a, a holiday party with my wife last night. 
And what's the first question someone says to you? What do you do? What do you do? And, um, you know, I just deferred it to my wife and um, she kind of looked at me because she's like, what are you doing? You know, I've stayed at home for the last 14 years. What do you want me to say to this person? So she didn't take the bait. So I told the person that asked, I said, well, my wife's an entrepreneur. And she said, really? What, is, what, is, what are you an entrepreneur of? And she's like, well, well, my wife is trying to start her own business where she's, we built a house and found the process was really frustrating and she found a gap. So there's architects that build this, that tell you it's not going to fall down. There's builders that actually build it. There's people that'll help you pick out, you know, drapes and, and uh, interior design stuff. But there's this experience piece that's missing. And if you think about, you know, how do you pick stuff out? How do you source different materials? You know, what do you want the vibe of your house to be like when you walk in? What do you want the people to experience? It's, it's going to be amazing. I think she's going to be the next uh, Joanna Gaines. I, I hope I could be the next Chip. That'd be, that'd be awesome. I think he's amazing. Yeah, you and her are an awesome duo. I know that my wife and I were really like, oh, yeah. It's, it's a really good thing to have people in your life who are a few laps ahead of you and you've seen they've won a few gold medals along the way. Sure. You're like, sweet. You know, like that's good inspiration. But I'm imagining her being at that party and whenever they ask, what do you do? It's like, well, I used to be able to say, I worked for this cool software company and I travel around the country. But the truth is I could say it, but I didn't like doing it. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't like being away and all of that but, jazz. But why does that define who you are, right? So so this is, uh, I don't make any money off this. It's not an infomercial, but I do have a, a formula and I call it the uh, the, the five focus areas. Um, no accident that faith is first. That's the first F. Family and friends are the second. I bundle them together because my friends are kind of like family. Finance is the third one, which is like where you work, your job. Um, the fourth one is fitness. That's not only physical, but also mental. And then the last one's fulfillment, which is fun. Things that bring you joy, things that are your hobbies that you like to do. And when people ask me questions like, you know, what, what are you, you all do? about? Or what do you do? Um, you know, I try and remind myself that I'm more than just my job. I mean... I'm really proud of what I do. I love my company. I love the brand. I love what we stand for as a mutual company, all that good stuff. But that's not me. That's a part of me. It's, you know, 20% of me, but it's not all of me. Actually, there's a few things more important above it, which is my faith in my family and my friends. Um, but yeah, I got to make a living. I mean, because if, if you don't have a good job, you're not going to be able to afford a gym membership or you know, friends, friends, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, but, but I think that that's like the bigger thing. We got to ask ourselves better questions. So I always yeah. love the types of questions. I'm less concerned about people's answers. I'm more curious about their questions. That's what's awesome about you. You asked like some of the best questions. It's a good concentration, I think, because whenever you're asking questions, it's like you come in, you sit down at the dining room table, you have so much to offer in multiple aspects, but the end result's only going to be about how exactly we navigate it, right? Like what questions we ask, because that's going to determine what's surfaced. And I agree with you, like the questions is what's most important, y yet we still walk around and we have this association, our identity is our work. I was helping Annie's mom out at an event 
And it was funny because I had two people approach me and they're like, so what do you do? Yeah. And I was like, I'm actually her assistant full time. <laughs> that's awesome. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, oh, wow, that's really important. Uh, we need people to be behind the scenes. And I was like, yeah, I agree. But I find myself doing that as well because I do not need to know exactly what I do professionally. I can still answer the question, what do you do? Because I do a lot more outside of that. Absolutely. Right? So like right now, I am talking to people. Right now, I do this. Right now, I do that. And it's a good thing for people to know. Hey, even if you're not crazy about your job and every single time someone asks you, what do you do for a living? And you hate answering that question. You don't got to tell them your job. You know, like, yeah, exactly. Tell them that you enjoy cheering for the Kansas City Chiefs at home. And then if they ask, well, you, my wife and I, because, you know, this has come up before, uh, I think it's hilarious. It's from a, a movie back in the day, but um, she said, you know, actually, I'm a professional kickboxer. <laughs> and people are like, really? Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then she goes on for a little bit. And then she finally says, no, I'm actually not. She drops the bit. But I think that that adds some levity to it. But I think it also tells the asker, like, hey, ask better questions. Yeah. It's like, let's not lead with that. Like, how about you lead with like, so how do, how do you know the host? You know, like, t- again, that's a better question. And someone did say that. So I'm like, kudos to you. Yeah. And you're like, be better. Yeah. Be better. <laughs> and, and how many times have you come up to somebody and you're like, oh, how's it going? And they're like, not too much. And you're like, you didn't even answer the question. You just audibly just repeated what you think you're supposed to say. the conversational scripts that we follow are undeniable and and your role as a leader there's a lot of different scripts as well i feel like but you have to go on and do your own thing as a leader and figure out well what exactly am i going to do who am i and what does leadership look like which isn't easy to figure all of that out yeah and and it's getting more complex particularly with work from home hybrid work environments um i'm a people in your face person. If I can sit down with you, I will find a connection. It's actually um, a personal goal. I, I, you know, really strive to connect with anybody, regardless of, you know, age, race, you know, uh, demographic background. It's, it's something that brings me joy. It's like, how can I find some similarity with this person? But it was a real shocker for me with being a hundred percent remote and COVID and, uh, trying to do that digitally, I'm not great at it. And I've had to really work hard at how do I engage people, you know, through Zoom and, um, you know, when I'm presenting and I can physically see people doing other things and how do I not get insulted by that? Because if I see them in an audience, I'll go over and talk next to them. Like I know all the tricks to like keep people engaged in person, but digitally I haven't figured it out. It's been a real struggle for me. What? do you find yourself doing to mitigate that gap? I go to the person I know is paying the least attention and I say, hi, Carl. I'm just making up Carl. I'm like, hey, Carl, you know, I'd love to hear your perspective on this. And all of a sudden, Carl's like, what? (laughs) Like, I got to pay attention. And then once you go to that car, whoever Carl is, then everybody else is like, well, hey, man, if they call on Carl, they're surely going to call on me. So I better pay a little bit more attention. But also, it's a good sign for me that I'm not telling a good enough story. Sure. Because if somebody isn't paying attention, that means I'm either speaking in corporate speak, I'm not making it motivating to them, and I'm not giving them any reason why they need to listen. Do you think work from home is a good productivity-wise move? 
Um, it depends on how you measure productivity. So all the objective criteria of pure performance would suggest that work from home is more productive than being in the office. I will also say from a relationship building point of view, I have yearned for um, the personal connection by having people in the office. And, you know, I'm not uh, unique to that um, opinion. And I mean, I moved to Kansas and started a brand new team and most of it was during COVID. So it was a complete digital experience. And now only are they slowly coming back. But I have some people that are 100% remote. Some people are hybrid. And some people are in the office every day. So how do you cater to the different needs? So when you think about marketing, you talk about segmentation, right? I mean, this is a good metaphor, a good real life of the employee experience is just as important as the customer experience. Because if Somebody gets to work from home in Kansas City, but then somebody in Topeka feels like they have to show up every day in the office. There's this equity issue where someone feels like somebody's, they don't have to pay for gas. They don't have to pay, you know, for clothes. They don't have to pay for lunch in the cafeteria, all these like little micro things. But I think it comes down to you got to meet people where they're at and every employee situation is different, but also our competitors um, a lot of our competitors are 100% online and we never even to see you, need to see you. And, you know, some people are really attracted to that. I think it, it should be a balance. I think that there is a, um, the human connection is really important. And as long as you're upfront with people um, and say like, look, yes, you can work 100% remote, but we do want to see you and we do want to build a relationship. And when we do trainings and do team events, we'd love to see you in person. If that's a deal breaker, um, then let's talk about that now. And nine times out of 10, those people that are like 100% remote, they're like, yeah, okay, I understand why. I'm cool with that. Uh, we haven't had an issue yet. Whenever you talk about employee and customer, what do you think should be the first focus? Is it customer? Because you obviously need customers to sell your product, but then again, you need employees to get the product to the customer. Yeah, it's, um, it's that chicken egg thing. Um, okay. I think that they're equally important. You know, you, you can't uh, have a business if you don't have revenue and you don't have revenue if you don't have customers. And if you don't have employees to build those products and reinforce that value proposition, then you're not going to keep customers. So you need them both. And I think the people that, how many times have you had a performance review where they talked about your results and at the very end, they talked about culture and how you are as a human? And it's, it should be the opposite. Right. I mean, you should talk about how you're doing uh, as a person and how you're developing yourself and others first. And then you should talk about how you're performing. So at my company, we do something called a grow plan. And everybody has to fill out like this baseball card. And it's like who you are, uh, your degree, what's your background, what are your strengths, what do you like, what are your career aspirations? Your weight, your height. No, not your weight and height. Yeah, your weight and height. Trust me, with me, I would never want to share that. Anyway, um, but it really flips the script and it talks about if I don't get you on board emotionally with what we're doing here and know that you're part of a team and that I'm investing in you as a person and you're going to grow here and you're probably going to get promoted and you're this is going to be a, a moment in your career where you're going to look back and like, that was a cool team. I should have stayed there. Or that was a cool team. I'm so glad I'm still here. That's what we're building. Once I get those people bought into that 
and really believe in that, they they do better work and I can have the better conversation. So it's employee experience drives the customer experience because they're gonna they're gonna tackle their work in a much different way because I met them as a human being and I focused on their strengths and focused on on them. I mean, we're all selfish creatures. It just let's just cut to the chase. It's like we all have our personal motivations and you know you gotta address you gotta meet people where they're at. And and that's getting more and more prevalent where people want what they want right now. And you got to sell to that. You got to appeal to that. So who taught you that? Who taught you this idea of when you're doing a performance review, let's look at who you are and your culture fit rather than your net stats. Because I think that's profound. Yeah, you learn a lot about leadership from what's gone wrong, not necessarily what's gone right. So I learned it from when I worked at Payless. They had these kind of one-page overviews of each store, their district managers, and they would go over their performance. And it was very, retail's cutthroat, right? I mean, so it's it's very specific. But I, I really appreciated that they got together on a quarterly basis and looked at the performance of people, but they also talked about them as human beings and where they lived, how long they've been with the company, where they could move to. Hey, could we maybe put you know, Paul or Susie over in this other store because it's closer to their home. And so they, they not only looked at performance, but they also looked at the personal element. And I thought that was kind of cool that they did that. So I kind of flipped it a little bit and I said, you know, I'd rather, so I kind of stole it from them, but then um, I put the more human personal piece first, kind of back to my story about the strengths, like get somebody focused on their strengths. Don't try and fix something that somebody's bad at because they'll probably marginally improve, but it's probably at this point something that they're not going to be amazing at, and that's okay. They probably are amazing at something else. I think so too. I think focusing on weaknesses, like you think of the big man in the NBA and you try and get him to start shooting threes like Steph Curry, it's like, no, 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 no. Just let him back the ball down, let him score in the post, and let Steph Curry shoot the threes. But... There's a lot out there, a lot more questions to ask you. Sure. But thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. You're a rock star. You're a rock star. I love what you got going on. You are not only crushing it in the business world, but it's so cool to see your family, to see the little puppy Mac. Also to see that you got so much else going on. We didn't even talk about your published book the book you're working on, the guitar you're playing, yeah, all of this. Yeah, we got, we got other stuff. But I think to close it, thank you so much. I love what you're doing. This is great. Uh, this is probably just as beneficial as to me, to the people that listen to it. And hopefully they got a nugget out of it, some inspiration. Um, but I will tell you, listening to stuff like this really inspires me. I, I think podcasts are a great way to get new ideas and approach things differently. And even if you get one little sound bite, but I think to close, what I'd just like to say is that, um, Don't lose yourself and just be defined by your job. There's so much more to you. And we all have an amazing story and we all have talents. You just got to find them. And I will say, I just um, released my second um, album, The Double Jumble Band. It's streaming on all major platforms. And my wife, she's amazing because she knows that I've got this creative streak and I have to let it out. So I got my three best friends, um, got an Airbnb in Nashville, three days two How days cool in the studio that? recorded as much as we could get in, in the allotted time and uh, came up with a, a pretty cool album. Is it amazing? No. Is it fantastic? Is it the best music in the world? No, not really. It's okay, but I did it and I'm out there. And I guess my closing message to anybody is that 
just because you don't have the, you're not supposed to do something or you don't think you can do it. Um, my advice is just do it. I got it in my hand, folks. Double Jumble Band. You better go check it out on Spotify, Apple. It's out there. All right, mate. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate you. And folks, we'll see you next time.